0: All right, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for bringing us together again to share our thoughts and our concerns with the Holy Scripture that we are about to study, for it is not easy. Uh, but then again, living the Christian life is not necessarily easy, but always very rewarding. So we ask your blessing on our efforts that we might open our minds and our hearts to hear what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. So we thank you for this time together and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Today we're going to be discussing chapters uh, 6 through 8. The writer of this commentary classifies this as uh, justification and the Christian life. Now, you have to remember that when Paul wrote this book, or this letter, he didn't put all of these little uh, headings in there and these classifications. In fact, it was written right straight through. No chapters and verses or anything of that kind. Those weren't established until the 12th and the 15th century respectively. Chapters in the 12th or 13th century and the verses in the 15th century. Uh, So if this was written, you know, as one long letter. The other thing that we have to do to really understand what Paul is saying is to read it, sort of try to digest it, and then put it into our own words and language. Uh, because if we try to understand Paul's somewhat convoluted wording, uh, we're just going to end up with a mind twister, and that's about it. The thing that we really want to get out of this is What does Paul's letters mean to us today? And there's a lot of this that, of course, has virtually no application to today. Chapter 7, in a way, for example, uh, is entitled The Law, Parts 1 and 2. And that is, of course, according to the writer of the commentary. We today... Most of us uh, being cradle Catholics uh, or converts from another Christian faith are really not concerned with the law per se in the way that the people at the time Paul wrote this letter were concerned about it. You had the Jewish people who were tied to the law hand and foot and then you had the Roman converts who knew nothing about the law so you had one extreme to the other what we have to do is look at what the structure of those laws really meant to us and we'll get to that when we get to chapter seven chapter six really is a review in a way of some of paul's previous teachings and I, there's some very good words in here and language uh, that I would like to kind of clear up for you. But it's important that you try to understand this as to what does it mean to you today. All right. Not necessarily what it, Paul was trying to say to the, um, the Jewish converts or the Roman converts at the time. Uh, that really doesn't have a lot of importance. However, you have to take it from one point, obviously, to the other. But let us begin with chapter 6 on page 61. <clears throat> it says here, What then shall we say? This is one of Paul's techniques in writing. He's asking questions. Now, obviously, he doesn't expect necessarily uh, that the book is going to jump out and answer them, so he supplies his own answers. What then shall we say? Shall we persist in sin that grace may abound? What he's really getting at here is that when uh, the converts were baptized they were told that baptism erased all previous sin. And that is true, and it's still true today. When someone is baptized into the Catholic faith, all previous sin has been wiped away. All right? And why? Well, this is what Paul calls a new life, a new beginning in the spiritual life. We have to constantly remember that he's talking about spiritual life. And the whole idea here is that baptism is an extremely important step towards a new life towards Christ. It is a commitment that we make. And if we don't make that commitment, and renew it almost daily, then it is meaningless. And we are not going to benefit from it. That's true with cradle Catholics as well as those who have come into the church in recent times, as adults. So baptism is extremely important and we have to kind of constantly remember That it is a commitment. And if we are not living up to that commitment, then we are not going to share in the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. Because as he says later, that when we were baptized, we were baptized into his death. Now this course is spiritually speaking again. But it is such an important point that I want each of you to kind of think about it in a Way that affects you. Are you really putting this. Into effect. So again. What shall uh, we say. Shall we persist in sin. That grace may abound. In other words. We have been given not only. A new beginning through baptism. But. Recognizing that when. We do fail. Through human weakness even after baptism, we have a way of renewing that newness through the sacrament of reconciliation. But Paul's point here is just because we have been cleared of previous sin and we have a mechanism uh, that is the sacrament of reconciliation to restore us to God's graces if we sin after baptism, then does that mean that we can sin just so we can run to the, you know, kids used to say this all the time. Oh, well, I can do this little white lie or this little uh, sinful thing because I can go to confession on Saturday and then you know, it'll all be forgiven and and we can go on. Uh-uh. When did reconciliation come in? In Paul's time? Did yes. They have the concept of confession? Yes, yes, but it was in a slightly different format. Dick just asked, when did the sacrament of con- or confession or reconciliation come into being? And it was in the very early church, alright, but it wasn't, you know, behind the screen with the priest sitting on one side and you, or the penitent sitting on the other side it was that the individual had to stand out in front of the church and ask all the parishioners coming in for forgiveness. How would you like to do that? Okay. And that is because once the breaking of the bread ceremony became commonplace, that was the original, that is the consecration that we call uh, from our mass the breaking of the bread was the consecration and the communion part of that they decided that it wasn't right for just anybody who was a sinner even though he had accepted Christ to uh, receive the body and blood of the divine savior without doing something beforehand. So the rite of penance, or the penitential rite of the Mass, was developed. Then it was expanded to the point where, as I said earlier, the sacrament of penance was developed, but it was taking the form of standing outside the church and asking for forgiveness. And that is why, in the point being here is that when we sin regardless of what it is it's not only a sin against God it's a sin against the church all of us and the idea of standing out in front of, of a church or you know somebody's house where a church group was going to meet inside and ask for forgiveness that was the point that was being made since we offended God, we also offended our neighbor within the church, and therefore we ask for forgiveness, not only from God, but from everyone else. Now, of course, that's been uh, simplified a great deal by going to confession to a priest. That's the purpose, and the priest represents not only uh, the church in God, but all of mankind. You got a question? A comment. Wouldn't 90% of the congregation be standing in front of the church? <laughs> yeah, his question was, wouldn't 90% of the church population be standing outside asking for forgiveness? Yes, that's probably true. But, of course, we're talking about very serious Okay. Yes, yes, Yeah. And that's where, you know, the format of our confession really got started. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, a little bit nerving, you know. But that's the whole idea, you know, quite often uh, people from other Christian faiths can't understand why Catholics go to a priest uh, to hear their confession they feel that they can go directly to God, which they can But, do they ever really feel that God heard them? You know? The whole idea of confession is an understanding by the church that, yes, we in our minds and our hearts ask for forgiveness, but being human, we like to feel that we receive that forgiveness. And therefore, the priest represents both sides. He represents God through the church, the power of the church, and he represents the people of the church as well. Okay? But it gives us a feeling of being forgiven when we hear him say, I absolve you or by the power given to me through the church, I absolve you, and so forth and so on. How many of you have dreaded going to confession to uh, confess a particular sin and then after you've done so you feel so wonderfully relieved and that that is a human need you might say of feeling relieved of the sin that you have committed right. and so that's the whole purpose of confession. Yes Joe? Mm, no, I don't think so. Yeah, that's what I was told once that one of the things for um part of my history was um having uh one of the classes and they said that it was used mainly for um at the end of life. And that might have been very religious church, I don't know. Well yes, but I I really I really doubt that. I've never heard that myself. Now, confession wasn't something that you know, was open to everybody on Saturday afternoon like it is here. Uh, and it was only for real serious sin, obviously. Okay. Uh, also, there weren't a lot of priests around in those days as well because in the very early church, it was only the bishops who could uh, absolve of sin. Later, that was given to monks in monasteries partly because they felt because they were cloistered in a monastery they wouldn't run, run around and tell everybody what those sins were. <laughs> okay? Of course, that had to be expanded as the population and the need expanded. Uh, but the point that Paul is making here is that just because we have a way of uh, resolving our, our problems, our frailties, our natural frailties, uh, should we just go and sin and have a good time and then run to confession just to get rid of them? No, absolutely not. It says, how can we who died to sin yet live in it? Or are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, we make a mockery of the sacrament we make a mockery of Christ's death and resurrection if we don't take it seriously and if we you know skirt the the reality of it because the reality here is sincerity if you are not sincere in your petition asking for forgiveness then you're not going to be forgiven because Your petition was not sincere. And including in that sincerity has to be the intention of avoiding that sin in the future, which a lot of people just totally forget. But there's our, you know, little strings attached here. And that follows. If you're not going to be sincere, in regretting what you, you did and show it by your earnest resolve to avoid that again in the future, then why should God forgive you? All right. We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life Spiritual life, of course, is what he's talking about. For if we have grown into union with him through a death like his, we also shall be united with him in the resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that our sinful body might be done away with, that we might no longer be in slavery to sin the whole idea here of this is to really turn your life around now that doesn't mean that you have to go and do different things we're saying turn your life around spiritually but show it eventually through your everyday actions and speech Sincerity is really the key to all of this. All of Paul's letters. <clears throat> For a dead person, and of course he's referring to spiritually dead, um, has, no, has been absolved from future sin because he's now dead and can't commit it. Okay. If then we have died with Christ, We believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ raised from the dead dies no more. And that is part of the whole idea of Christ's resurrection. To show mankind that there is a resurrection from the dead. That is from this life once we pass beyond that into the abode of the dead we then can be resurrected at some point in time. And Christ was the first to follow that. And we are promised by God himself that this will happen to us provided that we are sincere in our efforts. As to his death, he died to sin once for all. Remember, Christ represented all of mankind, and took all of the sins of all of mankind for all time upon the cross with him when he died. So, those sins have been forgiven, but if we are not sincere in following him, then we do not benefit from his actions, that is, his death and resurrection. Consequently, you too must think of yourselves as being dead to sin, and living for God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, sin must not reign over your mortal bodies so that you obey their desires, and do not present uh, parts of your bodies to sin as weapons for wickedness, but present yourself to God as raised from the dead to life, and the parts of your bodies to God as weapons for righteousness. Well, that's a you know kind of a wordy statement, but really what he's saying is that each of us, and he's said this in other words, in other letters as well, uh, that each of us is given a task or a role in God's plan of salvation, and that we are to use the benefit, the talents, and Necessary, if necessarily parts of our body, such as our speech, to exercise, uh, the requirements of that role that He has given us. We might think, well, gee, you know, that's pretty big, uh, order. If salvation, uh, you know, affects the whole world, how could my little contribution be of any benefit? It's amazing how much each one of your contributions can make. You have no idea. You know, I've been teaching for many years here, and it's interesting when I run into somebody that I may have had uh, in a class many years before, and I've been told this over and over and over. Oh, I remember when you said and such to me, and it really made a difference. Or it, it was important, or it changed my outlook on life, or words of that kind. So, you never know when what your little contribution to God's plan of salvation might affect a lot of people. Okay. I think we've sort of you know, exhausted a lot of this here. Uh, but Paul goes on and on and on with the same kind of stuff that I enjoy his, his writings, but I get a little tired of the repetition. But then we must remember that Paul write or wrote these letters to different people at different time periods and to different cultures and therefore the same message goes out to several different people, and that's why throughout his letters we have a lot of repetition. But I think if you read the letters particularly in the order in which they were written, you'll see that he starts out uh, rather brash and bold. Um, And then as he matures not only in life, but in the Christian faith, he begins to soften, begins to soften, I should say. Uh, and towards the end, particularly when you get into Philippians and Colossians, uh, then Timothy and Titus, uh, you see a totally different kind of person. Uh, much more humble, much more loving, uh, and considerate. Uh, so, don't let some of the harshness of his early letters throw you because he, like all of us, will change. Okay. Uh, uh, on page 63, in the commentary towards the bottom, about one third from up from the bottom, says if we apply this analogy, that is the analogy of what we have just been talking about, we realize that because of all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ, that is justification, redemption, the gift of the Holy Spirit and baptism, we are now to be addicted to righteousness, which leads to sanctification of life. Righteousness is not the same as sanctification. But righteousness or justification leads to sanctification. Sanctification is in itself something that is very lofty and many people have a difficult time reaching it during their lifetime. But that's the whole purpose of uh, purgatory. But we don't want to wait until we get there. We should want to be sanctified or approach sanctification during our lifetime. And it's amazing. A lot of people say, well, I don't know if I really want to give up the life I'm leading right now. I'm pretty happy with all of this stuff that I'm doing. But if you think about it, we are bombarded every single day and almost every minute of the day with things that sort of pull us away from God. Uh, if you surf the net, uh, television net, uh, particularly during the day, how many food channels do you really have to have, uh, to, uh, understand that one of the draws here is trying to get people to look at food as almost a way of life. Um, And yet, food is necessary, obviously. But to take it to the extremes uh, that some of these uh, television programs take it, I think, gets way beyond what is necessary. But the same thing is true. You can't watch any more detective stories without getting into all the gory details. And it's almost... Uh, enticing, you might say, that this is what they want you to look at, forgetting that all of that stuff is wrong. Wrong not only for it ever to happen again, but you wonder why, how, why, and, uh, actors and actresses can perform in such degrading, uh, stories, you might say. And obviously, it's money. You know I mean? The whole purpose. And he asked the people, the congregation, what is the purpose of blessing yourself with holy water when you enter a church? You know, nobody raised their hand. It's of course, dumb me. You know, I have to. <laughs> even though I'm you know, a visitor to the church. And so I said, it's to remind us of our baptismal commitment. Everybody looked around and, you know, gee. Where did he come from? (laughs) But the priest said, that's right. That's what the purpose is. Is to remind us of our baptismal commitment. So we have, you know, little reminders all around us. Do we really think about it? The whole idea of making a genuflection before you enter the pew of the church. Or bowing if your knees aren't strong enough to make the genuflection, you know. Either one is acceptable, but why? It is to recognize that God himself is there in front of you, is present. If you don't... And what bothers me is this dipsy-doodle thing. You, know? uh, you can... And the other... The other one that I really, really get a little upset about is when the altar is up there and the pew is over here and the person goes to the pew. You know? That means that they don't know what they're doing or why they're doing it. They're following, uh, you know, something that somebody told them. Or they probably went to school and the, the nun stood over them with a the ruler and said, if you don't do it right, you know... No, no, no. Okay. So, we want to take the time to think about our faith and how we are expressing it. That is so important. And God looks with love at each of us. And sometimes he shakes his head and says, oh my. You know, here we go again. But, There are so many little helpful helpful hints out there. Um, The other aspect that Paul is really talking about is this freedom from sin. And it sort of flows right into chapter 7, but the whole idea of freedom in Paul's way here is that under the law, the Jewish law with a capital L, right, the people were so bound and they couldn't live really and breathe without upsetting one of the laws. Uh, I think I've told you this before, but there is a very interesting book uh, by a fellow by the no, last name is Jacobs, I forget his first name, uh he wrote a book called Living a Year Living a Year Biblically, I think it is, or or words close to that. What he's done and he was he was a Jewish fellow who was not really raised in a strong Jewish household, but he wanted to take all the Jewish laws and see if he could live one full year without breaking any of them. And I recommend you reading this thing because it's well done. He, he doesn't demean the Jewish faith whatsoever, uh, but he's got a sort of a, a sly way of saying things, you know, so it becomes rather humorous in a way. But he goes through, for example, one of the Jewish laws is that you cannot wear a garment that is made uh, up of unnatural uh, fibers, okay, so that would be pretty difficult for us today, you know, with polyester and nylon and whatever in, in almost everything, so he had to wear a, he had to wear a gown, a white gown, totally made of cotton, okay? and he could not wear anything else. Uh, well, he said, walking down the street, uh, people all kind of looked at him in a strange way, particularly in the winter time in New York City. Um, but then there's a lot of weirdos in New York City, so you know he said, and, and that's the kind of the way he talked to make it a little uh, amusing. But you did learn a lot about Jewish culture in reading this book, but it is a lot of fun. Uh, there were so many other little things, but I, that was the one that I remembered the most. And, uh, you know, he couldn't wear pants because the only pants he could find uh, had more than one natural fiber in it. You know. And buttons, of course, most of them today are made of plastic anyways. So that was, a total. and zippers, oh, no, 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 no zippers, you know, that was not allowed. Uh, so it's, it's rather humorous, but the point is, he was so bound by this, <laughs> that of course he couldn't wait till the year was over. But he did, he did do it. Uh, that he couldn't move. And of course, most people would break most of those rules, uh, sooner or later. But the whole purpose of the law was to worship God, but unfortunately, because of the uh, the way that they were so binding, was that the idea of worshiping God was totally forgotten. People began to worship the law itself. And of course, as I've said before, during a Shabbat service or the observance of... Uh, the uh, holy day. Uh, the Jewish people. Will open. Their tabernacle. And what's inside. but the scrolls of the first five books of the Bible. That is the Torah. Alright. And they actually worship that. and They put that into practice. The worshiping of the law. The whole idea of God. Is almost totally forgotten. Unfortunately. Okay. It says here in verse 22. But now that you have been freed from sin, that is, uh, the extreme observance of the law, and have become slaves slaves of God, the benefit that you have leads to sanctification. Now, don't be afraid of the word slaves. All right? Um, He doesn't mean slaves in the way that we think of slavery. I want to read... I want to read something out of this book. By the way, this is a dictionary companion to the uh, New American Bible. Of course, this is very old. I do have a new one, but I like the old one better. Uh, I recommend that each household have one of these because there is a lot of very good information here. Uh, And it's important in a way. It says... In the New Testament, the notions of slavery and liberty serve to illustrate the moral and religious condition of man and the fruits of Jesus' redemptive work. Man is the slave of sin. Christ, and that's, of course, Romans chapter 6, here, exactly what we're talking about. Christ um, has liberated us from the slavery of sin from death and from the law, and so has made us truly free. The Christian is not one who received a spirit of slavery and fear, but a spirit of adoption on the account of which he calls God his Father. Paul wishes to prevent a false interpretation of this doctrine on the liberty of the Christian. uh, And paradoxically, uh, transforms this liberty into the service of a new Lord who is God and Christ, to whom he belongs and for whom he must live and die for living and dying is totally Christ's uh, prerogative. Okay. Alright, so the whole idea of slavery here is sort of uh, an exaggeration of a term To mean that we are now, through our commitment of baptism, we are now bound uh, to Christ. But are we living it? Does our speech and our actions reflect that? That's something that each of us really has to spend some time uh, thinking about. Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is all about the law. Now, it bothers me in a way that Paul would spend so much time writing to Roman converts who knew nothing about the law or the details of the law or how restrictive it was. But nevertheless, all of chapter 7 is about the law. Okay. and it's the law, he kind of puts it, the author of the booklet here, puts it into two parts. But I'm going to kind of simplify it, you might say. Um says, <clears throat> I just wrote some thoughts out here. So says, chapter 7 is all about the effects of the law on the human psyche versus the freedom that comes with baptism and the commitment that we make at the time uh, to follow Jesus Christ with our whole mind, our heart, and our soul. Now, most people would say, well, isn't that exchanging one form of bondage for another? No. It really isn't, because free will, and we have not only the right, but the obligation to use our free will, our common sense, you might say. So most people would say, isn't that exchanging one form of bondage for another? And that might be correct if all the individual does is exchange belief system. But Paul, the church, and I, And saying that the difference is a commitment coming from love. And love freezes from the requirements fulfilled out of duty. In other words, if we fulfill the teachings of Christ, as he has asked us to do. Because of structure. Because this is what his will is for us if we fulfill those out of a true love for Christ, then that actually frees us up in many ways from this bondage of observing laws. Uh, We don't really have to look at them, and the way I look at it is that I'm not concerned with church laws because I want I truly want to serve my Lord and my God. And therefore the requirement part of it fades when I do what he has asked us to do. It's a difference in attitude. The whole idea is I want to do it out of love for my Lord. Whereas the Jewish people never had the concept or the intention of doing something for God. They had to do it because it was the law. And if it ends there, then that is very restrictive because there is no life beyond that. And yet with Christ, as we follow him to the best of our abilities, there is eternal life waiting for us after this life passes. So that's the whole difference that Paul is making in chapter 7 here. The idea that the law was so restrictive and then you die. Uh, and many Jewish people still believe that, particularly the ultra-conservatives, the Hasidic Jews. You don't see them so much out here, but if you've been to New York City, uh, you see them quite prominently uh, wearing the black uh, long coat, the black hat, I'm talking about the men, of course, and the curls in their hair, and, uh, most of them do not shave and so forth. They are Hasidic Jews who are ultra-conservative who do not believe in life after death. So their whole life is spent in studying the law and following it to the very letter of the law. But then, what's, what's after that? What is the reward for doing that? That's it. That's it. Can you see how empty that is? And so Christ is saying, And Paul is saying here that by living a life committed to Christ I don't like to use the word slavery, uh, but committed to Christ to the very best of our ability leads to sanctification, and sanctification is eternal life. Does that make sense? That's what we really want to look we want you to look for. But, we have some problems here. Okay? In order to be a true and faithful servant of God, not slaves, as I said, I don't like that word, servant of God through Jesus Christ, we must first have to experience his love. This goes back to that diagram I gave you a couple weeks ago. Love of mankind has to come out of our experience of God loving us. Love begins with God. And as we experience his love, then we in turn must love our neighbor. And by doing so, Paul tells us, and the church tells us, that that will come, or that will fulfill the law that the Jewish people were striving very hard to fulfill just by observing all of their petty laws. I challenge you to download the 613 Jewish laws. And take a look at some of them. Uh, just make sure you have a ream of paper in there. okay? Uh, because they're so petty. Right? Uh, and as I've said many times before, many of those laws were not really intended to be sacred scripture or sacred in themselves. They were common-sense hygiene activities, okay? Uh, And many of them did not originate with Moses. Although most of the Jewish people and many Christians believe that the first five books and much of the early part of the Old Testament was written by Moses. Well, if he had done that, even though he was over 100 years old when he died... He would have been spending most of his time writing rather than leading the people for 40 years in the desert. And before that, he spent 40 years as a shepherd uh, for his mother's brother uh, because he killed an Egyptian. All right. Read read uh, the book of Exodus. It's rather interesting uh, from that point of view. Okay. The freedom that Paul talks about in Romans 7 is really our free will being restored. We now are no longer bound by minute rules that choke the very life out of us. Further, if we fall back in the sin, then when we recognize it and wish to be forgiven, We can re-enter the good graces of God through the sacrament of reconciliation. But he also states that because we have a very easy way to be uh, forgiven does not give us the right to continue to sin. The answer, of course, is no. Such an attitude shows no sincere remorse or intentions of sinning no more. Finally, Paul goes through the last part of chapter 7 with comments about the law and true to his former life as a conservative Jew. He states that the law was good and holy as long as it was a vehicle to worship and honor God. But when it became the the object of one's worship, in other words, worshiping the law for the sake of the law, Uh, it could not lead to anywhere but to sin. Because sin, can I mean, laws can only tell us what to do, and if we don't do it, they can only tell us that we've done something wrong. They can't lead us into eternal life or sanctification. However, we still have the age-old enemy of the flesh. And we must fight that battle constantly, but not alone. For we have the Holy Spirit on our side. Always. And that is something that many Christians, many Catholics, do not do. And that is pray to the Holy Spirit for guidance on a daily basis. Part of your morning offering of prayer should be to the Holy Spirit asking for guidance through the day so that we can avoid sin and honor God through our speech and our actions. Let's go on to chapter 8. Chapter 8 has a lot of beautiful wording in here, particularly the ending of it. So I'd like to go through some of this. Uh, in a little more detail, okay. Hence, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And of course, observe His teachings. Saying it in, you know, is not the same as acting it out that you are in Christ Jesus. Again, sincerity is probably, uh, Well, I I would classify, if we're putting a secondary title on this letter, I would say that it should be the word sincerity. Or you might want to say integrity. For the law of the spirit of Christ, of life in Christ Jesus, has freed you from the law of sin and death. For what the law, weakened by the flesh, was powerless to do this God has done by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for the sake of sin. Remember as I said before Jesus came to earth to represent all mankind in the likeness of sinful flesh and for the sake of sin. But in taking that To the cross with him. He condemns sin in the flesh. So that the righteous decree of the law. Might be fulfilled in us. Who live not according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. So important. For those who live according to the flesh. Are concerned with the things of the flesh. That is money. Sports. Go Giants. (laughs) Movies, food, etc., etc. Now, all of those things can be good in themselves. It depends on the extreme to which you take them. But those who live according to the Spirit, with the things of the Spirit, the concern of the flesh is death. But the concern of the spirit is life and peace. For the concern of the flesh is hostility toward God. It does not submit to the law of God, nor can it. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are putting things ahead of God. And unfortunately, we have to be very careful because I wonder how many people in a church on Sunday are there solely out of trying to fulfill an obligation. Isn't that trying to fulfill the law without regard to God or to why they are there? Mere presence in church on Sunday does not fulfill the requirement to worship God unless your mind and heart is directed in that order. So how many times are we guilty of doing the same thing? Mere presence in the church is not fulfilling the requirement to worship God and give of ourselves to Him. Okay. But if Christ is in you, although the body is now dead, spiritually that is, because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then the one who raised Jesus. Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. Consequently brothers we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body that is the flesh you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And for those who did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, through which we cry, Abba, that is, Father. Remember, the Jewish people, then and today, do not address God as Father. Because they feel that that is demeaning to him. In other words, they're taking away something that he has given us. He has given us the right to approach him. Jesus Christ opened the doors of that gift. We opened the doors to that gift. Prior to Christ's death and resurrection, the gates of heaven were closed to mankind. And the spirit was not available to mankind. But when Christ took upon himself the death of sin of all mankind, then the gates of heaven were opened and we were allowed to approach the Father as Father, recognizing his place in our life, recognizing that he is Lord and God of all creation, of all that is. And if we recognize that, there is no reason why, out of his divine love, he has accepted all mankind and wants all mankind to come to him. But the Jewish people, unfortunately, have not received that gift of love and conversion in their mind and heart And therefore, do not approach the father as father. That is a big no-no in their faith. And they do not use it. In other words, the intimacy that God wants us to have between him and us is not there. And that in itself, that intimacy, fosters internal peace. Mm -hmm. There's something that we should really strive for, the relationship that we have with Christ and God the Father and the Spirit through Christ should give us a sense of peace and hope. Unfortunately, our non-Christian brothers and sisters do not look at it that way. says, the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If only we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, when it says suffer with him, it doesn't mean, you know, chopping off your arm or getting crucified or sticking your head in a rose bush or something if it means it means accepting you know, the ideas the teachings the way of life that Christ holds out to each of us I consider the sufferings of this present time as nothing compared with the glory to be revealed for us For creation awaits with eager expectation the revelation of the children of God. For creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's kind of a mouthful you might say <clears throat> but what it's saying here is that god created not only mankind but all of the physical structure of the universe to support mankind you couldn't have a bunch of bodies sitting around floating around in out there in the air with uh, no place to go so creation was created by God out of love for mankind as a way to support mankind. But it has its limitations. It is a creation that has a point in time where it will be dissolved. All right? We have no idea when that's going to be. Uh, But that is what we're being told here. Okay? And when it is dissolved at the end of the world, it will change in some way because we, we believe that the body will be resurrected. We who are sanctified either through our efforts on this planet or through purgatory uh, and end up in heaven will be reunited with our body uh, at some point in time after the end of the world. I always say in that time I'm going to have more hair. <laughs> okay. At least that's my hope. Okay. <clears throat> so, creation, I kind of lost my trend of thought, sorry about that. Uh, let's, let's go back here. For creation awaits with eager expectation the revelation of the children of God. For creation was made subject to futility. That's where I guess I left off. It was made as something that was not intended to last forever and it will have an end. Not of its own accord, but because that's the way God actually wanted it. Creation itself, will be set free from the slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. As I said, it might change. It might be more beautiful than it already is. But nevertheless, if our bodies are going to be resurrected, we have to have a place to put them. So, it's going to change. Let's not worry about it. I think that's down the road at least, Okay? We know that all creation is groaning in labor pains, even now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan within ourselves as we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope, we were saved. Now, hope that sees for itself, it's not hope. For who hopes for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with endurance. That's what hope is all about. That's what faith is all about. In Hebrews, there is a more positive way of saying it, uh, that hope is something that we expect and it will eventually happen. This is putting it in sort of a negative way. I don't particularly like this particular uh, way of presenting it. But nevertheless, this is what faith is all about. Uh, okay, let's go on. In the same way, the spirit too comes to the aid of our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible groanings. Inexpressible groanings, that's where uh, the speaking in tongues comes from. All right. But that's a gift of the Holy Spirit and something uh, that isn't quite part of this discussion. And the one who searches hearts knows what the intention of the spirit is. Because it intercedes for the holy ones according to God's will. Okay. And this is really, the next section here to me is very, very important. And a sign of hope in itself. We know that all things work for good for those who love God. Who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is the firstborn to be raised from the dead. And those he predestined he also called. And those he called he also justified. And those he justified he also glorified or sanctified. Now the church does not Believe in predestination, but that's not what he's talking about. Okay. When you say that you want all of your children to be rich and famous and and uh, happy and beautiful, etc., that isn't predestination. That's you want the best for them. Okay? and that's in a way. What Paul is saying here, the word predestination has over 2,000 years uh, sort of gotten a bad uh, understanding or reputation. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is really saying that God really wants the best for all of us, and but there is an order. There is a stepping process into how to obtain that. Okay, but the end is always, if followed correctly, uh, sanctification or eternal salvation. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's kind of a very, very hopeful sign or statement in itself. He who did not spare his son, but handed him over for us, how will he not also give us everything else along with him? He who handed his son over, he who gave his son as the sacrificial lamb, you might say, for the sins of all mankind, if he was able to do that out of love, out of love for all of us, mankind. Is he not able to do a lot more? I'm putting it into my humble words. Now, this is a statement that you've probably all heard many times but I would uh, suggest and recommend that you mark this because whenever you are down, whenever you have a uh, depressing feeling of some kind and we all do there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of human nature. Turn to this particular section. Chapter 8, verses 31 through the end of the chapter 39. Okay. Mm-hmm. Who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? Is it God who acquits us? Who will condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died, rather was raised, who also is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us, what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will anguish or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword, it is written, for your sake we are being slain all the day long. We are looked upon as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we conquer overwhelmingly through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor present things, nor future things, nor powers of any kind, nor height, depth, or any other creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So regardless of what you are faced with if you know that Christ loves you and you have followed him to the very best of your ability according to what you believe is your role in God's plan of salvation, then regardless of what happens from outside you you always have the memory, the thought, the conviction that Christ loves you and that regardless of what happens, you will join him in heaven. I think that this is one of the most hopeful portions of all of Scripture. If it is understood in the way it, it was intended. Now, let me clarify a few words that are being used here, because I've been asked this many times. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, um, nor powers people will say, well, what does that mean? Did you not know that, and we haven't discussed this very often, that there are seven different classes of angels? Angels is the lowest class. We don't know why, but this is the way uh, it works out. Principalities and powers ...are also a class of angels. Alright? There are archangels and... I forget all of the others. Uh, And I wouldn't dwell on it. It's not that important... ...to us to understand the various classification... ...of angels. But that's what these words mean. Okay? In Paul's, Anna just asked, where do these words come from? In the early church, there was a great deal of discussion and devotion to angels. But once the understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit became more universal, then the role of angels disappeared. Because God used angels as messengers as uh, servants, you might say, in a way. They have, particularly during, in the Old Testament, there were prominent uh, roles for angels. For example, if you go to the uh, book of Tobit, one of the principal characters is the angel Raphael. All right? Then the early church, for example, to Joseph and Mary, the angel Gabriel, okay, so you have a number of of uh, stories about angels or incidents really happened about angels, but later on um, that began to fade as the role of the Holy Spirit became more predominant. Uh, anyone else? Any other questions? Yes, Cora. Uh, yes, but not suffering the part uh i i think i think you've made a very good point chorus that she doesn't want to wait till she dies to enjoy uh Christ she wants to be sanctified here on earth uh ahead of dying and that's true but it's not something that you can take upon yourself to do the thing is it must be done in conjunction with God's holy will for you and therefore, you understand what that role is through prayer. Uh, each one of us has a different role. And the only way we're going to find out what that is, if we don't already know, uh, is through prayer. So prayer is the way we search God and ask for guidance and direction. And then make yourself... Available. In other words, here I am, Lord, today, I've come to do your will, which is directly out of uh, the book of Kings, first book of Kings. Uh, we have a couple stories there where that's very prominent. I've come to do your will. Let me know what it is that I can do for you today. All uh, right. And it's by obedience to that word that you gain sanctification. Steve, his question was, we believe in one holy, catholic, apostolic church. And through our baptism, we are forgiven. All right. His question really comes from that point. If somebody comes into the Catholic Church, do they need to be rebaptized? It depends on where they're coming from. If they have never been baptized in any other faith, then yes, they must be rebaptized. They must be baptized. If they are coming from a organized, recognized Christian faith, and he mentions that Methodist, Episcopal, or the Presbyterian. Uh, Baptists and, and others are recognized Christian faiths. If you're coming from one of those faiths into the Catholic Church, no, you do not have to be rebaptized. That is sufficient. But what you do are asked to be, uh, you're asked to reaffirm your commitment in the baptismal ceremony. Doris, didn't you go through that? You didn't have to be re rebaptized. No. No. Okay. Uh, yeah. yes, uh, Billy? When do we experience eternal life? Can we experience experiencing eternal life while still on earth? Very important question. Billy <coughs> asks, when can we begin to experience eternal life. And can we experience it here on earth? And yes, the word is definitely yes. That you can experience eternal life through your relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, Now, I know Millie is very much involved in the uh, Divine Mercy program. And if you read the life of St. Faustina, she was very much on the threshold of uh, eternal life and sanctification for some time before she died. Very much. And many of the saints experienced that as well. And there's no reason why all of you, well, maybe except Dick (laughs) already... He knows I, I, I use him as the fall guy quite often. Uh, uh, but there's no reason why all of you cannot reach that level of holiness. And you can't do it alone, though. It has to be done in conjunction with the Holy Spirit and following the teachings of Christ. With the objection, well, no, objection, of Honoring the Father. Okay. All of our prayers are directed toward the greater honor and glory of the Father. Regardless of what we think or our intention is, uh, all of our prayers should be for the greater honor and glory of God the Father. Through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through the saints, or whatever. Uh, but the ultimate purpose of our prayer should always be towards the Father. Does that make sense? Anybody have a question or a problem with that? No other questions? Alright, let's end with a prayer. Father, we thank you for helping us to see things a little differently, perhaps. Help us then to open our minds and our hearts as to how we can apply these things to our own life today and every day. Help us really to have the hope, and the trust in you and your spirit to lead us in the right direction, regardless of what other people might say or how they might feel. For we know that you will take into consideration our particular place on earth, our role with family and other obligations. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.